0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. God, our Creator, when you speak, there is light and life. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may listen to one another, speak the truth in love, and bear much fruit in the service of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to mostly carry the torch this week. Welcome everybody. There are Bibles over here if you want them. They're not necessary. I mean they're not required. I know some Episcopalians break out in hives when you mention (laughs) reading the Bible and it's nobody will be called upon to recite or and we're not going to have sword drills which given that you know two old Calvinists like Steve and me um, no sword drills I promise. Um, As Steve said we wanted to talk for four weeks about the um, about all of the events between the resurrection and the ascension from the four gospels and a little bit from the book of acts and the fact that we're not going to meet next week means that we will finish the four weeks on the Sunday which follows closest to the feast of the resurrection uh, the feast of the ascension sorry um, so I think that will kind of be cool anyway so. Thank you for all of those marathon organizers. Even though Mr. Helm has done an excellent job negotiating a route to get here, we'll just take next week off. I think that, as Steve said, today's t- today's theme is about discovery. And I think that in the rhythms that we've all gotten into after 2,000 years of Christian history around Easter, we might overlook these stories a little bit. You know, we go from the triumphal entry, which is Palm Sunday, and we work our way up to Maundy Thursday when we strip the altar in, in memory of the Last Supper and the prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then Friday, it's all draped in black, and it's very somber, and our service is readings and and hymns that that really are all about how awful... Good Friday was and then of course Sunday comes and we put on our happiest clothes. I always wear my seersucker even if, when it's too cold. If it's too cold I just put on under armor first. But um and today would have been a good day for underarmor if I had worn seersucker. But we do that on Easter Sunday and the theme of Easter Sunday of course is the magnificent, joyous resurrection. But I think one thing that we overlook is the confusion and the chaos and the uncertainty of the first Christian followers when they were first confronted by the empty tomb. I read the Wall Street Journal, and the cartoons are of particular interest to me on the editorial page. And on Friday, I happened to come across one that I brought. It is I blew it up. I can pass it around it's two businessmen speaking to one another and one says, that's the problem with epiphanies. You can't schedule them into the agenda. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a kind of a humorous little, little cartoon for the business world, but it actually makes an extremely serious point about what's going on at dawn on Easter Sunday. I'd like to read, and those of you who have various translations of the Bible are are welcome to read along and follow. It's close to what I'm going to read from the new RSV, but the various versions that we've got are close enough that I think that you can follow along. I would like to read back-to-back the three synoptic gospel accounts of the first things that happened on Easter Sunday morning, and then we'll talk about those, and then we'll get to the John account. The first one I like to read is from Mark, chapter 16. It was, by most scholars, the first one that was written, and so the closest in time to the actual event. This is Mark, chapter 16, beginning at the first verse. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and Salome... "...bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of, to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side... And they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place that they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Skipping back to the passage from Matthew, same story. Matthew chapter 28, beginning at the first verse. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here For he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Now finally... Let's flip over to Luke chapter 24, the third in the historical order in which these Gospels were written. Luke chapter 24, beginning at the first verse. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and then he went home amazed at what had happened. The word of the Lord. Be to God. We don't always read various translations or various versions of the story back to back, but I think sometimes it's helpful to do that to get the full um, uh, the full value of the entire story. No doubt there are discrepancies in these stories. Uh, But as an attorney, I don't find that at all surprising. I've spent my time in court, and I can tell you the more witnesses you need to put on your case, the more dangerous it is for you because invariably these witnesses are not going to agree in every tiny detail of what happened. And so the more accounts you get the more the little details are going to change. But the the the, the larger point, which I'll get to in a minute, um, there is no discrepancy. And the larger factors, there is no discrepancy. But let's look at some of these details. It's very rich. You could if you wanted to write a screenplay for a movie, these are the kind of details that you would add to the movie. In Matthew, we are told about the earthquake and an angel, Matthew makes it clear it's an angel, is rolling back the the, the entrance to the tomb, the stone that uncovers the tomb. Um, we don't get the earthquake in the other versions. I think Matthew, who was a Jew writing to Jews in his gospel, thought that including the earthquake bit was important to convince a Jewish reader that this was a messianic event, that this... Jesus of Nazareth was really the Messiah. Luke is a Greek. He's not a Jew at all. And he's writing from a point of view toward a Greek world that's very analytical. And as a Greek writer, Luke is very humanistic in the way he writes his story. So he includes the detail of Peter running to the to the tomb to check it out after he hears the news. Which is a nice little thing for Peter because... Luke gives us an excruciating detail back on, on Maundy Thursday, the story of Peter's thrice denial. And so you know that Peter has been carrying this, this burden. And so getting Peter's running to the tomb to to investigate the news himself, that's a nice little bit that, that Luke chose to include. But notice also that Luke mentions the detail about the burial clothes lying by themselves I'll talk a little bit more about that from what John has to say about it but also notice in verse 11 of Luke's account when the women came and reported to the disciples about what the angel what the two men had told them um, he gives us the, uh, the the translation here says that these other d- disciples thought it was an idle tale. And the literal translation of the Greek word is nonsense. They thought it was nonsense. But it's also, according to one of the commentators I read, it is a medical term in the first century, and that would fit because we think Luke was a doctor. And the medical term implies the kind of delirium that one would, would babble if, if, if he or she had a terrible fever so it's almost like the disciples were saying, you must be out of your mind. You know, you're, you're talking gibberish. And that's the extra little detail that, that Luke gives us. Mark explains what the women were doing in the first place. He, he lays it out in more detail. The night um, the Sabbath ended, that is, Saturday night after the sun went down, they went and bought spices to anoint the body and that was part of the burial routine the, the body would be anointed with spices sort of a way to embalm the body and then it would be wrapped in linen well the question arises why were they going to anoint him with spices on Sunday morning when he had been buried on Friday but we remember that that on Friday it was a real rush to get the bodies down off the cross because The Sabbath was coming, and not just any Sabbath, the Sabbath that began the Passover. And so no doubt the disciples and the other followers had their work cut out to get the body off the cross and into the tomb before sundown. That was really important. So more than likely they had time only to take this donated tomb from Joseph of Arimathea and to wrap it with linen and get it in and get the stone rolled back across the entrance before the sun went down. So they were coming back on Sunday to do what they had not been able to do on Friday, and they were wondering amongst themselves, who's gonna help us roll the stone away? It's, it's too big to move. The similarities in the three accounts are unmistakable. It was a group of women, and they were going to the tomb No doubt, as a final devotion, the 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 last goodbye to the Savior whom they loved, the Lord of their life. The second similarity in every one of the accounts: they got there and the stone was rolled away. In Matthew, it's before chapter 28. The Jewish authorities had convinced Pilate not only to put the stone, you know, but to seal it up. Um if you saw the the, the clever little movie of a couple of years ago risen um Joseph finds the English actor portrays a Roman official who is um, who is sent by Pilate after Easter to try to determine to investigate these stories of this resurrection and to determine whether or not it's true and it's it's really a powerful movie I recommend it to you you can find it on YouTube and um, uh, it, Joseph Fine's character is looking at these broken ropes. They're they're large. They're really they're significant, and they've been sealed with wax over the the, the stone. But the, one of the Roman soldiers says it was like the ropes had exploded. So anyway, we get that um, we get that detail from Matthew that it had been sealed, and it was sealed for a reason. It was sealed so that this would be the end of the story. No more talk about a, a, a Messiah or a resurrection. They can't steal the body. They can't perpetuate this fraud for any longer. Another similarity, whether whether you read it in, in uh, Matthew as one angel or in Mark as one young man with brilliant clothing or in Luke, Two young men who were standing among the women. There was no question that this was a, a phenomenal, almost um, almost supernatural event. Somebody brings them the news. But it's interesting to me that this is news that they all should have remembered. He wasn't telling them something that they had never heard before. He's reminding them of what Jesus had said he was going to do. Remember what he told you. Remember he said that he had to be crucified but that he would be risen. Remember that he told you he would rise again. And then they remembered. So, this angel or angels were reminding these devoted followers of what Jesus had told them would happen it was not unexpected even though to them it was totally absolutely and utterly disorienting hold that thought for a minute while we read from the gospel according to saint john this is the gospel that scholars believe was the last in time to be written maybe as much as 70 years after the event when John was approaching 100 years old and he was looking back on it. And unlike the three synoptic Gospels, he did not write his Gospel as a narrative account of the things that happen, although there's narration in it. He wrote it more as a thematic theological work. Listen to how John presents the story. John chapter 20 beginning at the first verse. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. I want to read more, but I want to stop there for a couple of points. The other three gospel accounts, the synoptics, tell us that it was a group of women John tells us it was Mary Magdalene alone they tell us that that they showed up around dawn when the sun was coming up John makes it John stresses that Mary Magdalene was walking to the tomb in the dark now we all know that it doesn't go from when the sun comes up in the early morning it doesn't go from pitch black to broad daylight all at once. Uh, when I, last week, um, Easter Sunday, George and I served at the 7 o'clock a.m. service, and uh, coming down to the, to the church around 6 a.m., it was quite dark. Uh, you know, it was like, felt like midnight to me. And then as I was walking into the church a little bit after 6, it was starting to get light in the east, And by the time we processed through the the garden to line up for the opening processional just before 7, it was quite daylight. So John is not contradicting the other gospel writers, but he's emphasizing that it was dark. Now, why do you think he did that? Any thoughts about why John would emphasize it was dark? I think, not to speak out of turn but John uses a lot of dark and light imagery in his gospel and I think that his focus here was to emphasize to the reader that Mary Magdalene was still ignorant of what she was about to find darkness is sometimes uh, his metaphor for ignorance sometimes his metaphor for evil when um, Judas leaves the upper room at the Lord's Supper to go and betray Jesus. The last line that John adds to that account is. And it was dark. And it was night. Um, that was. He put that in there for a reason. And I think he put it in a reason. for He emphasized that it was dark when Mary Magdalene was going to the tomb. Because he wanted to emphasize. She had not yet had her epiphany. Nobody had had their epiphany. It was not yet on their agendas. But. I think he also put it in there to remind everybody of what, the, um, of what the prophet Isaiah wrote. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Well, the people of God who were mourning the death of their Savior were about to see a great light, but they were still in darkness. Consider also that he has Mary Magdalene there alone. He doesn't have her there with any of the other women. I don't think John got it wrong. I mean, according to one of the accounts, uh, one of the women there was Salome, which according to to tradition, Salome was the wife of Zebedee, which would have meant that she was John's mother. If Salome was there, I'm pretty sure John knew it. And I'm pretty sure that even a hundred years, 70 years later, he remembered that. I think he left all the other women out of the story for a reason. And I don't think that he, he, he disputes that they were there because when Mary Magdalene goes to the disciples, she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. I think he cleared all of the other women off of the stage, if you will, for a reason. And I'll talk a little bit more about that um, in our next session when Steve gives me three minutes. He's promised to give me three minutes anyway. I'm going to hold him to it. But, um, so we get Mary Magdalene and Peter and John in this account. And they're the, I say John, the, gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved is the way that John always refers to himself in his gospel. So there's no doubt that that's who this was. But notice um, that uh, the detail about the burial clothes lying in their folds, the linen wrappings lying there, verse 5, John 20. And then another reference to the linen wrappings and the head covering, the face covering, the napkin, which was rolled up. Now, according to um, the commentator William Barclay, the idiomatic Greek of the the, the linen wrappings, how they were appeared, <coughs> is that they were in their folds. That's the idiom that the Greek implies. According to Barclay, I can't prove it or disprove it. But if he's right, I think Barclay is on to something really significant. Because what he's saying is that the linen didn't appear that it had been unwrapped off of the body. Rather, it appeared that it was still, that it was still wrapped the way it was, and the body had simply disappeared from inside it. That's a rather phenomenal event a beautiful detail and the and the face covering that was neatly rolled up and placed over sort of like if you if you're in a fine restaurant and you get up to go to the restroom or get up to go somewhere else and you're coming back you put your napkin very neatly next to your plate and if you don't your waiter has come back and done it for you and when you show back up you know when you return there's the napkin lying folded neatly that's a really interesting um, and beautiful little detail, I think. But it um it's interesting that John included that. No doubt in John's mind that this was a supernatural event. But as yet they did not understand the scripture, John writes. I want to read the last part of this passage because this sort of sums it up for me. Going back to John 20. After verse 10, the disciples returned to their homes, that is, Peter and John. Verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. What a pitiful, mourning, heart wrenching thing for Mary Magdalene to be going through. She was left there in the garden weeping because she'd lost her Lord. She did not understand all of these gospel accounts whether using the metaphor of darkness or not show total incomprehension by these apostles, disciples followers about what has happened about what the stone rolled away and the tomb being empty actually means they haven't yet encountered the Christ They haven't met their risen Lord. They will in the next session, so come again. But they have not yet. Now, is this wrong? Is it stupid or ignorant of them? After all, the angels reminded them of what Jesus had told them was going to happen, yet they did not remember and they did not understand. Well, I don't want to be too hard on them because, frankly, I think I'm guilty of the same thing. I mean, how many of us have been to the funeral of a dear friend or a beloved relative and not felt grief? We have 2,000 years of church understanding of theological teaching that explains to us that death is not a, not a, a box in the ground an urn in the columbarium death is a door to everlasting life That's that's the Easter reality and yet we grieve because that's the human condition it is the human condition to grieve what is lost and that I submit is exactly what was going on with these disciples even after being reminded of what Jesus had told them was going to happen I submit to you, just like the the, the the cartoon lays out, that their epiphany had not happened yet because it wasn't on their agenda. Their agenda was to grieve for their Lord who was in the tomb. And even when the stone was away, they they still grieved. But I think at the end, the tomb represents the empty tomb. The stone rolled away. Represents God's promise that death is not the last word. That's really the essence of the Easter story. We sing on um, on Easter morning, Christ has opened paradise. And that's exactly what, um, what he had done. Um, it was not on their agenda yet. But they heard from the angels what the truth was even if they could not yet grasp it in their grief and I think the best account is the one that Luke gives us what does the angel say to the women in the gospel according to Luke he says why do you seek the living among the dead why do we seek the living among the dead Um, material possessions are great success in business success as a parent success in the community those are wonderful things but they are the dead they are the things that will turn to dust as the writer of Ecclesiastes wrote all is vanity it's grasping at the wind the one thing that lasts is the one thing that Jesus represents. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Seek the living. Any thoughts? we got a couple of minutes before the, the acolytes have already gone to vest <laughs> up. But um, anybody have any comments? Any thoughts? Any questions? Those were always... There was always a lot of very lively debate around the table in the in the bishops conference room in our in our old room. Well, yes, ma'am. I just have a comment because when you were talking about why do you say the living among the dead? Is that also the fact that when the Christians were gone, that they referred to them as being asleep instead of dead throughout the Bible? Gone to sleep. Did y'all hear the, the comment, the question that the, the early Christians thought of death? They came to think of death as having gone to sleep. In fact, we we, we get that um, we we get that in a number of the epistles where where Paul refers to the to the dead believers as having gone to sleep. That's a very good point, and that is um, of course exactly right. Christ is not a paragon of virtue for humans to emulate although he was he's not a, a great teacher of eternal truths although he was that also we could say the same thing about any number of, of great people in history great teachers great scholars and philosophers great moral examples but they're dead the living Christ is still living he is he's there he lives today That's the Easter story. So next time, um, we'll grapple with some of the first events where the living was actually encountered, and that will be in two weeks. And if anybody else has any comments, Coffee? What interests me, looking at this objectively, this is one of the few times I've looked at this objectively, the word epiphany is used in that, you know, they had not yet had their epiphany. And I sometimes think that people confuse an epiphany or a conversion experience with an epiphany. They may be believers, but their eyes had not yet been opened by the epiphany, which these were all believers, but their eyes had not yet been opened. So they weren't converted, but they had that aha moment Mm -hmm. later in a mouse, and when you mm-hmm. appeared to the, to the right. eleven in the, in the upper room, right—that's an epiphany. That's when the, the aha moment. It's not a conversion. <laughs> the literal meaning of the Greek word epiphany, or rather, the Greek word from which we get the English word epiphany, is revealing or unveiling, um, and 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 that's why we refer to the season that follows Christmas as the season of Epiphany, which is begins with. The three wise men, the magi, coming to um, to honor the Christ child, one with a gift that implies that he's a king, one with a gift that implies that he is a, uh, a, a rabbi, a religious figure, and one with a gift that implies that he is to be a sacrifice. That is the gospel truth in those three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And um, that's what epiphany means, and I think coffee is right. They... Realized something phenomenal had happened, but they had not yet had their true epiphany. <clears throat> yes, ma'am. Um, I like that in the gospel they include that a woman is the one that saw Christ for them first. Not because I'm a woman, but because of, if you're going to found a religion, why would you include a woman?
1: Why? Yeah, why would
0: Christ born? appear first to Mary Magdalene? Right. You know, she understood grace right. so beautifully. Right. Uh, if you're writing to people and you want them to join your religion, why would you include a woman? And you would say, like these amazing, upstanding Jewish men were there yes. when Christ rose and right. weren't right. hiding in a room and Mary Magdalene was going to going to see him in history. I think. I think that gets very close to a really, really important point, uh, which was, I believe, John's point. The way he arranged this story and cleared the, cleared the stage of, uh, unimportant actors in order to tell his thematic story. And, um, if you, if y'all would come back in two weeks, I'd like to comment a little bit more about that. Um, because I think, I think you're absolutely right. He appeared to Mary Magdalene first for a reason. Not to Peter, not to John, not to any of the other disciples, certainly not to the Jewish authorities, but to Mary Magdalene. We'll talk about that. Well, if there are no other questions or comments, I'd like to close with a prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, who sent your Son to take our flesh and share our darkness, to take up the cross and assume our transgressions, and to rise to new life, to redeem our relationship with you, our Creator. We pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to the Easter story, that whatever vain struggles defeat us in our condition, that you will keep us ever mindful that the last words have already been spoken for us. It is finished. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, our Redeemer. Amen.